Welcome Crossing Church. We're so glad you joined us online this weekend. If you're a longtime member or maybe you just found us this weekend, we're so glad you joined us online. We're in a series called Foundations right now. And Pastor Greg and Pastor Tamara, our lead pastors, have done awesome messages the past two weeks. Week one has been about our faith in Christ and how we need to build our life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And last weekend, they talked about how to perceive the presence of God, journaling, and how to hear from God himself. And I was so excited when they told me that I got to present on the Bible this weekend. So thank you, Pastors Greg and Pastor Tamara, for this opportunity. And so I love this book. This is my Bible, and it's amazing. The Bible has changed the world. In these pages, there is transcendent truth. There's truth about God. There's truth about what we know to be right and wrong. There's truth about your purpose in this life and about even what happens after we die. And this book has stood the test of time, even against so many opponents, so many things over history, so many people that have tried to get rid of this book that said that this book was irrelevant. It has still stood the test of time. I've often heard that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. And so I looked it up. And in fact, if you go to the Guinness Book of World Records website, it is still the best-selling book. They say over 5 billion copies have been sold throughout history. And that's really just the copies we can track and the printings that we know of. The Bible has been given away to so many people. It's been smuggled into countries that don't allow for the Bible. And so I'm sure that number is even much higher than 5 billion. So even while this Bible has been hated and misunderstood for over the years, it has stood the test of time. And I'm glad we get to talk about it today. And so you might wonder, where do we start? We know the Bible is sacred and we call it scripture, but how did it come to be? What about all the translations? Can we trust what it says to be true? That's what we're going to talk about today. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said in the preface to Paradise Lost, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. The first thing is to understand the object before you as long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tin cans or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing about the purpose of them. That was C.S. Lewis. And so today, we're going to examine this piece of workmanship together. So I would encourage you to do three things as we begin. First off, if you actually have a physical Bible in your house, it may be a little dusty, that's okay. Go ahead and grab that physical book that you have in your house, a physical Bible if you have one. And if not, have a device nearby, and we're going to talk about the Bible app that you can download later. I would also encourage you to take notes. It might be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose this weekend. So I encourage you to take notes, maybe on your phone or your tablet or a piece of paper. If something jumps out to you or you hear something that you didn't know before, I would encourage you to write it down. I also encourage you to go to wearecrossing.com notes or download our app, and there's a message notes tab there. I've included many notes and links that I'll be talking about throughout the message, and you can check them all out there. And the last thing, again, is to have one of those devices nearby as I'm going to walk you through the Bible app, some reading plans, and where you can start reading the Bible today. So let's pray together, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the people watching online right now across the world. God, I pray that your spirit be in every home where they are gathered and watching, and Father, I pray you speak through the technology, speak through the internet as we learn about your word and learn about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, number one, what is the Bible? 
a lot of times we talk about the Bible as a book, and it's just one book. And sometimes people even dismiss it out of hand. Well, the Bible is just a book of fantasy, or it's a book like Lord of the Rings. And if someone dismisses the Bible out of hand as a single book, it immediately shows that there's a misunderstanding about what the Bible actually is. Well, this might look like one big book. This is actually a collection of works. It's actually a small library between two covers. The Bible is 66 total books within these pages. And those 66 books were written by 40 different authors over a time span of about 1,500 years. So the Bible is not one book, but 66, like a small library of books. And the Bible is split into two major sections. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. You'll see in your Bible, probably at the beginning, a table of context and split, Old Testament, New Testament. And so let's talk about the Old Testament first. If you open your Bible, the first book that you come to is the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi for a total of 39 different books in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament starts in Genesis with the creation story. And it's a beautiful story about how the universe came to be in the beginning of man. And then it talks about how mankind fell into sin. It talks about Noah and the ark and the Tower of Babel. And then we come to the person of Abraham. Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is now the beginning of the story of the Israelite people. And from that chapter in Genesis all the way through Malachi, it tells the beautiful story of the Israelite or Jewish people over those 1,400 years. And all throughout the Old Testament, there are incredible stories. You've probably heard of some of them before, like David and Goliath. Or maybe you've heard about the prophet Elijah taking up in a chariot of fire. All those stories are here. King David and the Psalms and the Proverbs. And what's amazing is, all throughout the Old Testament, there are prophecies about a coming Messiah, a coming Savior that was going to return God's kingdom into the world. It was going to redeem all the darkness and sin that have come upon the world and bring God's kingdom back here to earth. And we see that Savior in the New Testament. And we'll get there in a second. So, the Jewish people refer to the Old Testament as the Tanakh. The Tanakh is actually split into three sections. So all the Old Testament books, you have three different sections. The first section is the Torah, or the law. It has the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that's called the Torah or the law. The second section you have is the Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And in that, you have books like Joshua, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, and many others. The third part is the Ketuvim, or something called writings. This section has books like the Psalms or the Proverbs. It has poetry, it has songs, different wisdom writings. And in all these sections, you have a lot of history too, talking about actual events. It was most likely Moses that wrote those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And then we have many different authors that we'll actually explore in a moment for the other books. And so before we go to the New Testament and talk about that, I want to show you how even within the Old Testament, we have clues and scriptures that talk about how it came to be, who actually wrote what. I love this very first reference we have of the Bible actually being physically written. We're going to go to Exodus, the second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, chapter 17. In this story, we have Moses, and he's standing on this hillside, and the Israelite people are fighting the Amalekites. And as they are fighting, the Lord tells Moses, hold your staff above your head. As long as you hold it above your head, the Israelites will win the battle. But as the staff drops, they will begin to lose. 
Now Moses is not as young as he once was at this point in time, and so he can't hold the staff over his head. And a beautiful thing happens. Two of the Israelite men, Aaron and Hur, come alongside Moses, one on each side, and actually help him hold up the staff for the remaining of the battle, and the Israelites win. And then we have this verse, Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll. Did you catch that? The Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder. Recite it to Joshua, who was down fighting in the battle. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. So we have Moses instructed by God to record something down on a scroll. This is the first reference we have of scripture being written. And I want you to remember, the Lord commanded Moses to write it down. We're going to talk more about man writing and God inspiring in a moment, but I want you to keep that in mind. One other example I want to give is in Jeremiah, one of the prophet books of the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 36, starting with verse 1, we have this account. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. I just want to pause real quick. So often in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, the writers give us clues and facts, people's names, dates, and events to ground scripture in history. One of the amazing things about the Bible, apart from some other holy texts, is that it is grounded in history and we can correlate it with events that happened all throughout these thousands of years to know when stuff happened and to know that these events truly took place. So the scripture goes on. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the nations from the time I first spoke to you during Josiah's reign until today. Perhaps when the house of Judah hears about all the disaster I am planning to bring on them, each one of them will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their wrongdoing. So Jeremiah summoned Baruch, son of Neriah, watch this, and at Jeremiah's dictation, Baruch wrote on a scroll, writing scripture, writing parts of this book of Jeremiah, all the words the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah. So again, this is just a second example among many where we have someone writing the scripture, actually taking the words of Jeremiah and writing it on a scroll, which then becomes the book of Jeremiah. And there's even something more special about this account. Baruch, son of Neriah, this scribe who's writing it down. So around Jerusalem today, as archaeology and excavations take place, they actually uncover these little seals. And you'll see a picture of the seal now. And this seal is kind of like those wax things that you would see in letters, like in movies, and someone would press a ring or a seal into the wax. These seals were placed on the scrolls. And this little seal was found in the late 1990s around Jerusalem. And it's amazing. It says on the seal, Baruch, son of Neriah, the scribe. So this seal has the same name, the same person that is mentioned in this verse in Jeremiah. And what's the coolest part is that on this seal, you'll see in the top left corner, there's even a fingerprint on the seal. Here we have a physical object from history, this scribe and his fingerprint who wrote parts of the book of Jeremiah. Right? Just so cool. And we have this all throughout scripture in the Old Testament. So, back to the Bible. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. And that book was probably written around 425 BC. And then we have a 400-year gap before the New Testament is written. So, about 1400 BC, Moses begins writing those first 
five books of the Bible. We have the Old Testament. And then around 425 BC, the book of Malachi is written. And then the Old Testament closes. And so from 425 BC to about 1 AD, when Jesus is born, it kind of goes quiet. We don't have any scriptures or writings in the Bible in those 400 years. Now, that doesn't mean other things were being written. We actually have books like First and Second Maccabees that are written during this intertestamental period. That's what we call this time period. And we'll get to, in a little while, why maybe those books weren't included as well as other writings. So we have 400 years, and then we come to the New Testament. Now, the New Testament contains 27 individual books. Among those 27 books, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those Gospels could also be understood as biographies of the person of Jesus Christ. So we have four biographies, and then we have what we call epistles or letters. So there was this guy, his name was Saul of Tarsus. And he didn't like the Christians. He actually believed that they were being heretical or they were, being, uh, they were against the Jewish faith. And so he actually persecuted Christians, even had some condemned to death. And this man named Saul of Tarsus, on a road to Damascus, experiences something miraculous. After Jesus has died on the cross and rose again, Jesus himself appears to this man on the road to Damascus. A miraculous experience, the risen Christ shown to Saul, and he does a 180. His name changes to Paul, and we now know him as the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul then writes two-thirds of the New Testament books. And these books are actually letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to different churches around Asia Minor at the time. So we have two-thirds of the New Testament being Paul's letters to the churches, and we have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are biographies of Jesus Christ. And then we have a couple other books that are also writings, some letters, and some other things, prophetic imagery, things like that. So the New Testament, the 27 books, they were written from the years about A.D. 50, after Jesus' death and resurrection, to about A.D. 95, around that 40 to 50 year period. And so if we were to look at the entire collection of books that make up the Bible, it would look like a small library, kind of like this bookcase. We can call it our Bible bookcase. And it has all the Old Testament books, all 39 of those, and the 27 New Testament books. And those 66 books make up the Bible, written over a span of about 1,500 years. So that's what the Bible is. And by the end of the first century, again, around 95 AD, we have all these separate books. We don't have what we call the Bible yet, but we have these documents, the Gospels, the letters of Paul, we have the whole Old Testament. So our second point is, how did the Bible get formed? How was the Bible formed? We have these different documents. We have New Testament letters and all that kind of stuff. And we have the Old Testament. So how did the Bible come to be? And so I want to start this section with a verse from 2 Timothy. And it's important to remember. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is inspired by God. Some translations say all scripture is God-breathed. So I want us to remember that as we look into how the Bible came to be. And so the process we're talking about is canonization. The Bible canon means the books that now become the 66 and we put between two covers and it becomes the Bible. This is the biblical canon, the 66 books. And the process we came to is canonization. So 
during that intertestamental period that I talked about, we have some writings. We have the Maccabees and some other uh, Second Temple period writings. And then even after the first century, we have things like called the Gnostic Gospels and some other things that we'll talk about in a second. But what's amazing is even within Scripture, we see that during the first century, the Apostle Paul, disciples like Peter, actually refer to certain books as Scripture. Before we have our Bible, before we have something that's called the New Testament, these men actually call certain works Scripture already in the first century. Here's Jesus himself reading from the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book. And this is Jesus himself. He goes into a Jewish synagogue and he does this. Luke chapter 4, verses 17. It says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. Notice the authority that Jesus is saying Isaiah, the book from the Old Testament has. This book of Isaiah is scripture. And Jesus does a mic drop and he says, I am fulfilling this passage today. Many times throughout the New Testament books that we have, it refers to other parts already as scripture before we have something called the Bible. Let's look at one other example. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, the disciple Peter in the first century, is going to refer to Paul's letters, Paul that we talked about before, as Scripture. Again, before we have New Testament books. He says in chapter 3, verse 15 of 2 Peter, Also, regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters, the letters we talked about, in which there are some matters that are hard to understand, the untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. See what Peter is doing here. The disciple Peter already is referring to Paul's letters as scripture, and he is saying the rest of scriptures. So we get this picture that in the first century, before we have a New Testament, before we have a Bible, that the works are already considered scripture. One last example, we go back to Jesus himself again. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45, Jesus speaks to his people. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Isn't that amazing? Jesus actually mentions those three sections that we talked about before, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Jesus here says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So even in this first century, Jesus is affirming certain documents as scripture. So it is clear that there are certain documents and certain writings that have a spiritual authority imbued in them. Regardless of what people decide or people said about them, these first century Christians and Jews understood that certain books had authority. So when you hear about other gospels, like the gospel of Thomas, for instance, 
If it helps you to know, I've actually read the Gospel of Thomas in its entirety. I don't recommend you do it, but it's out there. You can find it on the internet. And so when you compare the Gospel of Thomas to the Gospels we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one thing to remember, the Gospels in the Bible were written very close to Jesus' life. They could be about 10, 20, up to 40 years after Jesus' life. I know that sounds like a long time in modern standards, but when it comes to ancient historical documents, this is actually very close to the events they record. Something like Alexander the Great, his biography was written hundreds of years after his life, where the gospel we have are just years, tens even, after Jesus. So the Gospel of Thomas and some of the other Gnostic Gospels were written in the second century or later, a hundred years or more after the life of Jesus Christ. And if you read them, it would become very clear very quickly that they are extremely different than the Gospels that we find that accurately record the life of Jesus. So I want you to think about the books that we have in our Bible today, not that someone chose them and they somehow placed them in the Bible, but that these books had a spiritual authority from God that was then recognized into a canon, and that's why we have the 66 books. Not so much people picking and choosing books, but a recognition by many people, several councils, councils over the years, of what belonged in the Bible. So to actually name some names and years about when we had the 66 books in a single list, the first person to say that was the church father, Athanasius, in AD 367. He said, here are the 66 books in order. Then the Council of Carthage in 397, again, confirms the canon, the 66 books of the Bible. And then in 400, we have St. Jerome, who completes the Vulgate, a Latin translation of the entire Bible. So hopefully that helps you understand what books went in there, how it was decided, and the authority that these books had outside of what people picked and chose. So number three, translations and trust. So some of the most common questions that I've heard about the Bible is, why so many translations? What is the difference between all these different versions? If you open up the Bible app on one of your devices, you'll see many translations you can choose from. And also there's the question of how do we know that the words we read today are the same that the Bible writers wrote back then? So first we need to understand the source material. To be clear, we do not have the original papyrus or the original scrolls that the gospel writers, the apostle Paul or Old Testament writers physically wrote with their hand. Well, we have our manuscripts. These are copies of copies. And before you think that somehow, oh, there must be tons of errors in there. The act of copying manuscripts was a tedious process done with the utmost care. And we have an incredible amount of manuscripts of the New Testament. We actually have about 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts. And the amazing thing is they are incredibly similar about 99.9% .9 accuracy between manuscripts. And none differ when it comes to doctrinal issues. So even though it's copies of copies, they're all confirming of each other and pretty much the same. Even when new manuscripts are discovered, like the Dead Sea Scrolls in about the 1960s, when matched with older manuscripts and what we had in the Bible, they matched, again, with about 99% accuracy. So let's look at one more timeline to kind of show how the Bible has come to today. We start in AD 400 with the Latin Vulgate. From there, that Latin Bible is used for hundreds of years through the medieval times till about 1382, where we have the first Middle English version of the Bible of the New Testament translated by John Wycliffe. 
he translated from the Latin to English. Then in 1522, Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, he translates the Bible himself into German from the original Greek. And around the same time, we have William Tyndale, who translates the New Testament for the first time directly from the original Greek to English. And just so you know, the Old Testament written largely in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament was written in Greek originally. Tyndale was amazing. He was fluent in Hebrew and Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, French, amazing guy. Then from 1522 to 25 to 1622, the next Bible we have is one that you might have heard of, the King James Bible. In 1622, King James I of England, he's the King of England, commissions a Bible, and they call it the King James Version. And because he's the King of England, he has the power and the money and the influence to spread this Bible far and wide all over Europe. And so this King James Bible becomes the standard Bible used all over Europe for hundreds of years. The King James Version from 1622 all the way to 1901 is pretty much the predominant version. It's also pretty poetic and it sounds cool. And it actually shaped much of the Western writing for years to come. Thee before thine, except after thou kind of thing. That's how the King James Version sounds. Then in 1901, we have the American Standard Version translated. All the way then to 1971, we get the New American Standard. And then the NIV, which much of what we read here at the crossing, many churches use, is the NIV. Now, a lot of these translations either go for word-for-word translations or paraphrased or a balance. The NIV in 1984 was the first translation to try and strike that balance between a word-for-word translation and a paraphrased translation. And so it's great for reading. Then we have the ESV in 2001, a modern word-for-word translation. We have the Message in 2002, the HCSB or Holman Christian Standard in 2004, and the Passion in 2017. We'll talk about those in a moment. One thing to remember, older translations do not necessarily mean greater accuracy. The King James Version, just because it was made in 1622, doesn't mean that it's more accurate than modern translations. Actually, it's kind of the opposite. Among the 1900s, some of the discoveries and archaeological excavations, we found more Semitic texts, more manuscripts, and we actually have a better understanding of Greek language and Hebrew language today than they did in 1622. So some of the modern translations like the ESV that goes for word for word, even though it's made in 2001, actually might be a better translation than the King James Version from 1622. Also, it's important to understand context. And that's why sometimes a paraphrased version, maybe like the message, could help you understand the context. Who's talking and who's writing? Who are they talking to? Who is the audience? That might help you understand what the letter is or what the book is that you're reading. So again, we often read from the NIV version here at the Crossing Church. And again, it provides a good balance between word for word and paraphrase. Now, there's been some debate about the message version and the passion versions. I don't want to get into too much specifics here. Those are very very paraphrased versions of the Bible. And I've put two articles in the message notes. So if you go to wearecrossing.com slash notes, there's two articles there, one on the message, one on the passion. And I encourage you, if you have questions about those, you can read those articles there. So here's my recommendation. If you're looking just for general reading and you want to read at length, like read a full chapter or read a full book of the Bible, go for the NIV or the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. 
it's a great balance of word for word and paraphrased, and it's just a great way to just read the Bible. If you're looking to study more in depth, maybe look at a real meaning of a verse or a specific word, I would go with the ESV, English Standard Version, or the NASB, New American Standard Bible. So, our last point, where should you start? We've talked about what the Bible is, these 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years. We know that these scriptures and these books had spiritual authority imbued in them. It wasn't just decided by happenstance. So what should you do? Where should you start in the Bible? I'm going to say a great place to start is the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel, 16 chapters. It was the first gospel written chronologically. It's the second book in the New Testament, as you find it there. And it reads like an action movie. It goes right into Jesus' baptism. It has his miracles. And it's just a great way to start to learn about the gospel. Another one would be the Gospel of John. It's a great read. It has things. The Gospel of John has some things and events that are not found in the other one. So I encourage you, check out the Gospel of John also. And as you read, I want you to think about, especially if you start with Mark, is the author quoting the Old Testament? Are they giving spiritual authority to some of those Old Testament books? I'll give you a clue. The Gospel of Mark does it right away. When is Jesus talking in these books? What does Jesus say about himself and his relationship to God? And how do people around Jesus react to his teachings and miracles? So that's just a few to get started. The Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John. And we want to end with showing you a technique as you read scripture. We do something here at the Crossing Church called SOAP. And it's a way of reading a scripture and journaling and interacting with it. So SOAP, S-O-A-P, stands for this. Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. So S for scripture, you start by reading a scripture. I'm going to recommend some reading plans in a second. But if you want to start with the Gospel of Mark or John, go for it. So that's your scripture. After you read the scripture, maybe it's a chapter, maybe it's a few verses, the O stands for observation. This is where what do you see in the verses that you're reading? Who is the audience, if you could tell from that scripture? Is there a repetition of words in that scripture? And what words stands out to you? After you write that down, and it can be short, just a sentence, just a few words, you move to the A, which stands for application. This is when God's word becomes personal. Pastor Greg talked about this last weekend when he talks about a rhema word, that what in the scripture is speaking to you today. And so write down, what is God saying to me today? How can I apply it to my life and my situation? What changes do I need to make? Or is there an action I need to take? And the P finally stands for prayer. Pray to God. Talk to him. You can ask him what the scripture means to reveal something to you. Or just pray, talk to him, and then also listen. Prayer is a dialogue not a monologue, like Pastor Greg and Tamara said last week. And so listen for God too. So finally, I want to take out that device that I talked about before. And I want to encourage you to download a specific app. It's called the Bible app. And there's lots of Bible apps out there. And this one, you'll see a picture of it right here. You can download the Bible app. It looks like this. You can search in the App Store on the iPhone or Play Store on Google. Or you can even go to the website, Bible.com. It's actually the same resource, the app and the Bible. And that app, it's incredible. All the translations that I mentioned and many more are available in that. And there's even audio recordings where you can listen to the Bible spoken to you. And so it's a great resource. And inside that app are actually reading plans that you can follow. And so I've included links in wearecrossing.com notes. Go to the message notes. I've included a reading plan for the Gospel of Mark that I mentioned. There's also a first steps reading plan. It's a year-long plan, but just gives you small snippets from all throughout the Bible 
that's a great place to start. I've also given you a whole Bible life journal reading plan. If you've never read through the Bible before from its entirety, Genesis to Revelation, I encourage you to check out that plan. And you know, there's so much that we could talk about of the Bible. I haven't gotten a chance to talk about the archaeological and extra biblical or outside biblical proofs that show that this book is true or how the Bible compares to other religious texts. I can tell you there is no comparison. The authority and the truth found in this book is not found anywhere else. And how the Bible is grounded in history refers to specific historical events and people of the time. I want to end with a quick story and then we're going to do a soap together briefly. I want to tell you the story of Hein Palm. He was a Vietnamese man, a Christian, that lived through the Vietnam War. And after the war, when Vietnam fell, Hein Palm was accused of helping the Americans during the war and he was thrown into prison. And he tried to remain faithful to God, praying every day. But they would indoctrinate him and try to brainwash him with Marxist propaganda and communist propaganda. And he would pray to God to deliver him from this prison. And he wasn't delivered. And one day he resolved, I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm going to walk away from Christianity. The next day, he was assigned a job in the prison to clean the latrines, one of the most dreaded jobs in the prison. As he was cleaning the latrine, as he was cleaning a waste paper basket, he saw a piece of paper with some English words on it. As he pulled it out, he washed it and cleaned it off. And he found that it was actually a page from the book of Romans, chapter 8. And this was the verse that said, We know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him. For I am convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the scripture that he found in a waste paper basket cleaning a prison latrine. He was encouraged. And from that day forth, he continued to pray. And get this, he asked if he could clean the latrines every day after that. The next day, when he went in to clean it, he found another page from the Bible. He realized that there was a prison warden using the Bible as toilet paper in this Vietnamese prison. But every day he cleaned the latrines, cleaned off that piece of the Bible, and would keep it and read it. One day he was released from prison, escaped to Thailand, and then to America to become a successful businessman. But that's just one story of so many, of how even in the darkest places, during the darkest times, when there's seemingly no hope, the Bible, the Holy Scripture comes to bring light to a dark place and to a dark world. There's something special about this book, not because certain people decided what books go between these pages, but because they're inspired by God himself and have a spiritual authority to bring light and hope. So in our last couple minutes, let's do a soap together. We're going to go to John 3.16. Maybe you've heard the verse before, maybe not. If you would, and you have your physical Bible, you can turn to John 3.16. It's going to be towards the end. It's in the New Testament. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. And I'm going to read it from this Bible. This is the Holman Christian Standard Version. So here's our scripture. John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So, that's our scripture. What's the O, the observation? You can write one down now. For me, I observe that it says God loves the world. That means he loves you personally, and he loves me personally. And that God made the ultimate sacrifice, 
giving his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And this verse tells us that if we believe in him, we will have everlasting life. That if we put our trust in the person of Jesus Christ, this Savior, this Messiah, that the entire Old Testament points to, and the scriptures in the New Testament all write about, we can be saved from sin, be forgiven, and spend eternity with God. So what's the A? The application? If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, now's your chance. I can tell you most surely, this book has changed my life. There's actually a time, well, I grew up in church. I grew up in church and was a Christian my whole life. And when I got to college, I fell away for a time. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't go to church. And then one day, I actually picked up the physical Bible that I had used in youth group. And there might not be anything special about the physical paper that makes up your Bible, but there is something special about the words within these pages. And it brought life back to me. And it showed me that God loved me just as he loves you today. And so the application is, admit you need him, confess your sins and ask for forgiveness, and decide to trust in Jesus and live for him for the rest of your life. So for the final part of SOAP, we're going to pray this. It's the prayer of salvation. And I'm going to ask that you repeat the words that I say in your home, wherever you're watching around the world. And it's not anything special about the words, but your heart as you submit to the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to bow your heads or close your eyes, you can keep looking at the screen. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe you died on a cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. I ask to forgive me of my sins. Father, teach me to follow you. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Now I would encourage you, pick up that Bible, download the app, and start reading now. And we also want to connect with you so that we know that you gave your life to Christ and we can send you resources and pray for you and pray with you. So you can text the word Jesus to the number that you see on the screen. And when you text, we get that, we pray for you, but also it allows us to send you information so you can further your walk with Jesus Christ. I know that was a lot to take in for one weekend, but I encourage you, go back to the message notes, follow some of the links I've put there, I put a link to a resource called The Bible Project. It's a great YouTube channel and website that talks all about scripture and how to read it and how to read certain books of the Bible and also many other articles and resources for you there. Thanks for joining us today at The Crossing Church. We can't wait to connect with you next weekend.